This is Monday Morning QB, July 12, 2021. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, it's Moral Monday and a campaign of nonviolent direct action from the Poor People's Campaign begins today. The evidence mounts children are being mistreated in border detention facilities. Should its racial impact be known before a law is enacted? The Supreme Court does damage to voting rights and after an act of Congress to provide COVID relief for struggling black farmers, white farmers have blocked them in court. All that and more, stay with us. National Moral Mondays and the Poor People's Campaign are launching an entire season of nonviolent direct action, beginning today at 1 p.m. outside the Supreme Court. Sounding the alarm, if you will, about the dangers threatening this country's democracy. Voting rights, in fact, are under attack, and because of hundreds of legislation proposals this year alone, voters are left with fewer protections in place today than were in effect before the original Voting Rights Act passed. So says the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Well, we, we surely uh, need to keep the pressure up. Uh, we, we saw, you know, really significant turnout uh, in the 2020 election. People saying we needed to... Uh, defend this democracy. We needed to raise the living, the minimum wage to a living wage. We needed, uh, you know, to, to make sure that, that poor and low income people are lifted up. We have to address systemic racism. And, and what we see right now is, you know, um, state after state and, and the Supreme court, you know, really, um, attacking our democracy right now and, and attacking in particular, uh, voting rights. And, and we know the connections between voting rights and all of the issues that concern the 140 million poor and low-income people in this country. And so we are continuing to, you know, sound the alarm and um, ushering in a, a, another wave of, of direct action because it's, it's the time for it. Um, people, people have to put ourselves out there um, reminding um, the nation of what, it, what, it, what it's supposed to be and what it needs to be. Um, to address the injustices um, of our day. And, and you know, this is a significant attack on our democracy right now um, with more states and hundreds of, of bills right now uh, in, in state legislatures about, um, uh, you know, denying voting rights and, and making it harder for, for, for people and people of color and all people to vote. You know, that's ironic that you would say that because and I come from the Vietnam generation, and I recall that we thought that by now, if we saw this time, we wouldn't still have to be fighting this hard. That's right. I mean, this is why we in the Poor People's Campaign are, are launching and calling for this um, season of, you know, uh, moral direct action um, leading up towards um, August 6th, um, because August 6th, would be the 56th anniversary of the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and yet we have fewer voting rights today than we did 
when that when that act was passed. Um, and we have legislators and the Supreme Court, you know, trying to even uh, take away more of those rights. Um, you know, when when you uphold uh, basically uh, allowing states to to engage in in racism, uh, you know, as as in North Carolina case, you know, surgical racism. Um, but then in this most recent Arizona um, ruling, uh, we see we see this this all out attack on on voting rights and and racist voter suppression um, being upheld by the highest court in our land. I'm wondering if the season of nonviolent direct action that you're launching is that enough is 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 a nonviolent appeal enough it's not passive it's very active um but but it is nonviolent it's it's not the violence that those that you know uh showed up at the capitol on january 6th trying to hurt this democracy it's it's a a nonviolent you know very active uh direct action where where you know the people of the nation, including and especially the poor and low-income leaders that make up, a, you know, close to half of the U.S. population and a third of the U.S. electorate, are insisting that um, that democracy matters and that we're going to, you know, put ourselves out there um, defending that democracy and calling out, um, you know, uh, our whole society for for the need um, to defend this democracy that that. Um, and and I, I think what we know is that, uh, you know, the Republicans and are 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 perfectly happy, you know, denying people living wages and 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 suppressing votes, um, and and other politicians are as well. Um, so that's when you you have to have the people. Um, that's that's what history has shown is that when people move, and and call out our society to to live into its creeds, um, that that's when change can happen and so that's that's what this season of direct action is about uh, it's why you know on monday we'll have a press conference and an online action and and a, a massive call-in it's why on uh, monday july 19th on the anniversary of the seneca falls um, declaration of sentiment uh, uh women um a hundred women will you know from all over the country um will be you know in dc um, insisting that uh, that we have to defend this democracy and we have to um, expand and protect voting rights. We have to um, we have to raise wages, um, uh, and this all has to happen immediately. Uh, we can't wait any longer, and it's why we'll continue to organize. You know, on the 26th of July, in senators' offices all across the country, um, uh, poor and low-income people, moral leaders, activists will be insisting again that that democrats republicans independents all need to defend this democracy need to to make sure we immediately pass um a minimum wage increase um you know that we immediately uh put forward the for the people act and, and the john lewis voting rights act um and and we can't wait any longer um the Congress cannot leave, go out of session without doing all of this immediately, and that we need to get rid of this racist filibuster. But when you appeal to the Senate, when you appeal to um, members of Congress, 
it's almost as if you're for for relief it's almost as if you're asking the fox to be careful guarding the hen house well i think um we're clear that that it you know that people have the power um to to organize and to to remind the nation uh what it's supposed to be um uh and people have the power to to vote um our elected officials who who don't raise wages, who don't protect voting rights, who don't expand health care, um, who don't meet the demands and needs of the 140 million poor and low-income people, uh, we have the power to vote those people out um, and to really transform the society from the bottom up. And so, um, you know, uh, what we'll be doing, you know, as, as folks go into senators' offices is, is, you know, put this question out of which side are you on? Are you on the side of justice? Are you on the side of democracy? Are you on the side of, of healthcare and living wages and, and ending this racist filibuster? Um, and if you are, you know, we'll come out and we'll say, you know, this senator has vowed uh, to join with other senators to do the right thing. But if you're not, then folks are prepared to keep on organizing, keep on pushing. And, and we're planning for a, a very massive um, and, uh, direct action back in Washington, D.C. on August 2nd. Um, which will be uh, before the Congress has gone out of session and, and again, before that historic uh, August 6th uh, anniversary passage of the Voter Rights, Voting Rights Act um, because uh, we're going to insist that, that, the, that we can do better um, and that it's, it's on, on Congress uh, and on the White House to ensure that, that we, as a nation, you know, defend this democracy. Reverend Theo Harris, I don't want to sound facetious about this, but it's almost as if when you're saying you're having a a moral revival on Capitol Hill, it's almost as if that's a waste of time. Well, what we know is that, you know, for the last couple of years, the Poor People's Campaign has been trying to organize to put poverty um, and the issues of poor um, poor people and low-wage workers and people of, of low wealth onto the national agenda. And, and although we, we are having to fight and fight all the harder for voting rights and for the raising the minimum wage, we, we do um, have our politicians and our media talking about poverty for the first time in a generation in a way that we have not heard. Um, and so, so, uh, I, I truly believe, and I think what, what history and what the present has shown is that there is a power in people coming together across the lines that divide us and insisting that we shift this narrative and that we build the kind of power um, that is needed for us to be able to, you know, in the words of Dr. King, make the those in power say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. And so, you know, we've had a lot of no. Um, and we're still getting no right now um, from politicians on both sides of the aisle. But we we also know that, um, you know, any great stride in history, any, um, you know, uh, any, you know, progressive um, movement has had um, not uh, those in power waiting um, to hear what the demands and what the program of, of the, those that are being disenfranchised and impoverished. Um, but instead, uh, it's, it's when people, you know, take it into their own hands and, and start 
keep on organizing and keep the pressure up that then, you know, we win things like the Voting Rights Act 56 years ago, or, or we, or we put things like poverty on the national agenda and, and have our, our president, a sitting president say that ending poverty is not just a aspiration, but it's a theory of change. Um, and so now it's our job to keep up the pressure and, and hold him to that. Um, because, uh, indeed ending poverty is a theory of change. Um, uh, you can organize society and the economy and our politics around the needs of, of poor and low income people. And when you do so, um, you can lift people from the bottom so that all of society can rise. And so, you know, I, I, I have great, uh, hope that, that that is possible. Um, but it's not a naive hope. Reverend Liz Theo Harris, Repairs of the Breach, Poor People's Campaign. Thank you. Thank you for the Moral Monday movement and talking with us about it. Thank you so much for uh, being interested and continuously um, uh, being uh, a voice uh, out there um, on these issues. The Moral Monday's campaign season kicks off today with a press conference featuring the Reverends William Barber and Liz Theo Harris outside the Supreme Court at 1 p.m. There's a growing body of evidence that unaccompanied migrant youth detained in U.S. custody are being subjected to inhumane conditions. Last week, two federal employees detailed to Fort Bliss, the largest shelter for unaccompanied migrant youth in the U.S., filed a whistleblower complaint. They cited numerous instances of gross mismanagement, causing harm to children's health and well-being. This comes just two weeks after testimonials from children themselves were filed in a federal court in California. They described deplorable conditions within a network of emergency shelters set up by the Biden administration to deal with a sharp increase in unaccompanied migrant children arriving at the border. All the more reason immigrant advocates are calling for an end to this kind of detention. Sue Goodwin reports. According to the most recent numbers available, roughly 14,500 migrant minors are being held by the U.S. government. A great many of them are detained in emergency intake sites run by the Department of Health and Human Services at military bases, convention centers, and fairgrounds across the country. They were set up to be an improvement on the more dangerous, jail-like detention facilities run by U.S. Customs and Border Protection. But how much of an improvement is it when children describe, among other things, being served spoiled food, sleeping in filth, lack of access to showers or clean clothes, being wakened by bullhorns, and being placed on suicide watch lists? That is what happens when you put children into detention centers. That is Clara Long. She is an associate director with the U.S. program at Human Rights Watch, focusing on immigration and border policy. 
and she appreciates the rationale of moving migrant children from border cells into emergency shelters, but as she points out, even if the two environments are different, they are not different enough. The, the issue that links them is that the U.S. continues to rely upon detaining children and has not invested in child-centric child welfare models for handling children who, who come to the border. And there's a very long way to go. Uh, and it's been, it's been really disappointing to see the Biden administration over-invest in detention and under-invest in getting kids to their family. Now, these emergency shelters, often housing hundreds and in some cases thousands of children at a single site, are supposed to be short-term placement, meant to last only a few weeks until children can be placed with family or with approved sponsors or in licensed long-term shelters. But that requires a significant commitment of resources that haven't been forthcoming. And as of early July, the average stay at the temporary shelters was 37 days, according to Health and Human Services data obtained by the Associated Press. And according to attorneys representing migrant youth in U.S. detention, more than 100 children have been detained longer than 60 days. And as Clara Long explains, that only raises the risk of psychological and emotional harm. Studies have shown lifelong impacts of childhood trauma and have confirmed that detention is massively traumatizing for children. I've seen this myself in, in interviews with um, children who are being held or have been held uh, in family detention centers or as unaccompanied kids. Um, that's actually why, you know, the child welfare system over, you know, a long period of time has shifted in the positive direction of not holding kids in congregate care. Um, you don't have mass orphanages anymore as best practice in child welfare for a reason. And that reason is because congregate care is inherently um, abusive and harmful for kids because you can't have the kind of individualized attention and loving environment that kids need to thrive. And then, I mean, where you get that environment um, is, you know, most, and the reason why the child welfare system privileges that is with loving caretakers and family. And, and so, again, coming back to what the Biden administration has so far failed to do is to treat migrant children as children uh, and as it would treat any other child who is in a child welfare environment. And, that, and in that environment, the top priority is the child's best interest. Um, and what that often means is that you um, that they you know do anything possible to reunite a kid with their family as quickly as possible. So essentially, what is happening is that the same government agency that oversees domestic child welfare, the Department of Health and Human Services, is also responsible for the welfare of unaccompanied immigrant children. Yet the two systems operate very differently. I think one way to think about it is that there is a separate and unequal system of child welfare that applies to migrant children. There are basic child welfare protections in the United States that a kid who is not uh, caught up in the immigration system would benefit from that are not reflected in the law and practice that govern 
the treatment of migrant kids. And that's not to say that the child welfare system is without issues for kids who are not in the migration in migration procedures. That's not to not to excuse any problems there, but just to say there are basic guarantees, basic advances that are not reflected in policy uh, with respect to migrant kids. Again, as has been stated here, one of the chief priorities among child welfare professionals working domestically is to place a child with whatever family or sponsor can be found, and to do that as quickly as possible, in a day or two days. That it does not happen in the child migration system. Instead, it can take weeks and months and even longer while a child languishes in detention. Of course, there are circumstances when it takes longer than a day or two to find family members or sponsors who are then vetted to assure the safety of the child being released into their custody. In which case, Clara Long says there are far better and doable alternatives than exposing children to mass congregate settings and the abuses that too often go with that care. It's not impossible to set up short-term shelters in which these kinds of issues are not coming up, right? Like that, that, that shouldn't be an impossible job for the government and there should be much more oversight uh, into these kinds of shelters, into these kinds of conditions. Clara Long says child welfare advocates are well aware of what these shelters should look like. Transitional foster homes, where families are licensed to care for migrant children, are widely considered to be the best option for kids in U.S. custody, especially for minors who have been traumatized and require extra emotional support. So it should look like small family-like environments with consistent loving care. This is the foster care system or um, group homes are what's preferred in the domestic child welfare system. That's been a long, long-standing trend. Um, Congress even passed a, a, a law back in 2018 called the Family First Prevention Services Act that confirms sort of a federal policy towards family as the best setting for children. Having um, a move away uh, from congregate care into what are people, you know, call family and community-based settings. That's where children can have and develop, you know, these like individualized, familiar adult relationship in a stable environment. Um, that's what allows kids to thrive. Clara Long, Associate Director with the U.S. Program at Human Rights Watch. There is some response at the congressional level to what is happening to migrant kids in emergency detention. Following last week's whistleblower complaint, Congressman Raul Grijalva of Arizona called for an investigation into the facility housing migrant children in Fort Bliss, Texas, stating that children do not belong in detention and that he has long advocated for the closure of these types of facilities, Grijalva said, quote, the Biden administration must pursue community-based alternatives to detention and put the welfare of children first. We need an independent investigation to determine exactly what's going on and end these inhumane practices once and for all, unquote. For Monday Morning QB... I'm Sue Goodwin.
We express solidarity with the Haitian people who face heightened political instability after the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse last week. We heard the song Comrades, performed by the Haitian group Atis Independent from the album What Is To Be Done. The right-wing Supreme Court eviscerated what remains of the Voting Rights Act earlier this month when it affirmed two Arizona laws that Democrats argue are racially discriminatory. The decision has emboldened the Republican effort to restrict election access across the country, and it cuts off one of the few routes available to escape rising right-wing authoritarianism. Reporter Chris Banger-Drowns has the story. Texas Democrats made headlines in May when they walked out of the state capitol, depriving Republicans of the quorum needed to pass a draconian election law. But just a few months later, that bill, minus some of its most controversial elements, is back on the table. The latest proposed Texas bill would ban 24-hour and drive-through voting, prevent officials from proactively mailing absentee ballot applications, tack on even more ID requirements for mail voting, and expand the authority of poll watchers. In response to this and other bills, some Democrats have doubled down on the strategy of out-organizing voter suppression by simply turning out more voters than Republicans can hinder. Vice President Kamala Harris spoke about such a Democratic Party plan on Thursday at Howard University. With this $25 million, the Democrats are investing in the tools and technology to register voters, to educate voters, to turn out voters, to protect voters. People say, what's the strategy? Well, I just outlined it. <laughs> are going to assemble the largest voter protection team we have ever had to ensure to ensure that all Americans can vote and have your vote counted in a fair and transparent process. That funding for voter organizing is certainly welcome, but some activists argue voter outreach alone cannot balance out the disruption caused by GOP laws. Here's Cliff Albright, co-founder and executive director of the Black Voters Matter Fund, speaking with Democracy Now! on Friday. There's a feeling, and it's come out, you know, both in the actions coming from the White House as well as in some, you know, leaked uh, unnamed staffers, that basically they feel like organizers will be able to out-organize the voters' pressure, that we'll be able to out-organize Jim Crow. Um, 
um, or even to out-litigate um, this Jim Crow, which, again, cannot happen without federal legislation. Cheryl and Eiffel from the Legal Defense Fund tweeted as much out yesterday as well, that we cannot out-litigate this if we don't have the federal protections necessary uh, in the form of the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. If we don't have those protections necessary, you can't out-litigate it, you can't out-organize it, and it's unfair and actually insulting for the White House to assume or for the, for the party to, to put that burden on the backs of voters, again, primarily black voters and brown voters and, and marginalized voters, to put that burden on our packs because they fail to get past this necessary piece of, of legislation. As Cliff Albright points out, the strategy of out-organizing or out-litigating voter suppression is extremely difficult without supportive legislation enacted at the federal level. And this month's Supreme Court decision regarding Arizona election laws probably further dissuaded activists from taking the path of litigation. Marjorie Cohn, professor emerita at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law and former president of the National Lawyers Guild, says the 6-3 decision authored by Justice Samuel Alito creates guideposts for courts to judge the merits of claims of discrimination under the Voting Rights Act. These guideposts make it more difficult to make legally legitimate claims for a number of reasons. For one, Alito writes that any claim of racial discrimination must be large enough to outweigh other state interests, namely combating voter fraud. There's virtually no evidence of any voter fraud, and yet voter fraud was the mantra of Donald Trump and the Republicans throughout the election and even in the, during the campaign. And it's a red herring to justify voter suppression laws. But here we have six people on the, on the Supreme Court, the six right-wingers on the Supreme Court, saying that voter fraud was enough of a state justification to overcome whatever disparate impact these two provisions might have on uh, voters of color in Arizona. The two Arizona provisions nullify ballots cast at incorrect precincts and make it illegal for certain people, like community organizers, to collect ballots from voters to deliver to polling places. Both policies have clear racist impacts, as precinct locations change more regularly in black and brown communities, and native communities rely heavily on some ballot collection measures. But Arizona's fraud concerns, even though no fraud was found to have occurred in last year's elections, outweigh the clear racist impact of Arizona laws, according to Alito. That's the problem. A state can say, well, we don't have any evidence of fraud, but you never know. There could be fraud in the future. And that could be a, a, a court that wanted to follow uh, what the Supreme Court did here could very well come to the conclusion that we're going to uphold that voting restriction because you never know it, it could prevent fraud in the future. And, and Kagan talks about how dangerous that is. Another guidepost created by Alito calls on courts to look back to 1982 a year when the Voting Rights Act was amended to compare voting practices then with practices now. Alito argues that because in 1982 state law limited most voters to casting ballots in person on election day, the Voting Rights Act shouldn't cover voting not done in person. That 
could make courts less likely to uphold limits on election day voting, because that's where most of the voting took place in 1982, and could make it easier for courts to uphold voter suppression laws that have to do with absentee or mail ballot uh, voting, because in 1982, there wasn't so much of that. This is important because many of the new restrictions imposed by GOP state laws pertain to mail-in or absentee voting. The additional ID requirements for mail-in voting supported by the Texas law, for example, could be difficult to challenge under the Voting Rights Act, given Alito's guidepost. This legal strategy of comparing today to 1982 reminds Marjorie Cohn of the originalist philosophy so often promoted by conservative jurists. Looking back at 1982 reminds me of that originalist philosophy where you look back at something that might have been the case then but is not necessarily the case now, how many years later, as an excuse to justify coming to the conclusion that they want to come to. I mean, I think this originalism and textualism is an excuse to reach the ends that they want to reach and kind of the ends justify the means. Alito's guideposts regarding fraud and 1982 originalism clearly limit the ability of activists to litigate against the wave of GOP state legislation. As Cliff Albright mentioned, federal legislation like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act could be advanced to protect civil rights and democracy. There's also the Judiciary Act of 2021, which is pending, which would increase the number of Supreme Court justices from 9 to 13 and dilute that right-wing agenda. But the problem is that because of the filibuster and because of the makeup of Congress, and uh, you know the, the blue dog Democrats, these are not going anywhere fast. So if litigation is not a viable route, and if federal legislation is held up in the Senate, organizing may be the only immediate solution to our political problems. Marjorie Cohn says activists need to pressure Democrats to do the right thing, in addition to turning out more and more voters. Biden does respond to pressure. We know that. He responds to uh, progressives who pressure him, which is why we have to continue the pressure. He is not going to do the right thing uh, just, you know, instinctively. So we'll see what happens. But I think we're talking about, you know, organizing at the grassroots level, educating voters about their rights, how important it is to register to vote and try to get around some of these voter suppression measures, given the horrific decision from the Supreme Court. That's Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law and former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Read more of her work at MarjorieCohn.com. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Back in February... Maryland became one of only a handful of states to consider racial impact statements in designing criminal justice legislation. The hope is that it will be far easier to address the potential for a law to have a discriminatory impact before it is adopted, rather than to undo the damage once a policy is put into place. Sue Goodwin has more. 
What got announced in February is a pilot program that called for every major piece of criminal justice legislation during Maryland's 2021 legislative session to be examined through a racial equity lens. To accomplish this, the Maryland General Assembly worked with Bowie State University and the University of Baltimore Schaefer Center to include racial impact statements in the analysis of criminal justice bills. These analyses were made available to lawmakers and members of the public for review during policy debates. Dr. Charles Adams is a criminologist and chair of the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Human Services at Bowie State University, where he is also director of the Institute of Restorative Justice and Practices. He led the Bowie State team working on the project, and here he explains exactly what a racial impact statement is and why they are needed. It's a tool for lawmakers to evaluate potential disparities of proposed legislation prior to adoption and implementation. It's a way to really begin to ask the question, uh, the potential impact of any law or policy or program that will be enacted or created. It's trying to understand that our system as it currently exists is not equal and the impact of our laws are not felt equally among our um, people. And so this is really an opportunity to be proactive as opposed to reactive once the law is implemented and in practice to begin to, to look at the disparities. It's important to note that the project was launched just as the Maryland State Legislature undertook several key police initiatives. Thus, they contracted with Bowie State University and the University of Baltimore to construct, for the first time in the state of Maryland, a racial impact statement. From Bowie State, we were responsible to collect the data and look at all of the key uh, points surrounding each piece of legislation and come up with data to reflect some of the past trends and potential future trends of each potential piece of uh, legislation or bills. And so we were very excited to be uh, at the table to have that opportunity to really craft a impact statement uh, on all the key pieces of um, police legislation this year. And, as Dr. Adams explains, they covered a wide range of issues that had the potential for racial impact. Well, we were looking at areas such as um, use of force by police officers. We were looking at areas such as the no-not warrant that gained national attention with the Breonna Taylor case. We were looking at the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights, and we were looking at issues surrounding uh, police officers due to intervene. The team submitted its report on the 2021 legislative session in March, and eventually all the legislation they considered passed, but only after lawmakers could factor in the insight offered by the team of racial impact researchers. Dr. Adams explains why he calls this a game changer. Uh, I call it a game changer because by extension, what the state legislator uh, really did was to acknowledge that we have structural inequality, that the way our laws are 
execute it. And sometimes the way our laws are even written can have an adverse impact on racial minorities in the state. So to acknowledge the potential structural inequality is, is really a game changer, is to really acknowledge, like I said, that we live in an unequal society. And, and, and to be proactive to address those inequalities or those disparities up front and give second thoughts uh, about creating or implementing those laws with the understanding that they could have a negative impact on racial minorities in the state is really forward thinking and should be applauded. To imagine the powerful kind of difference this type of process can make, Dr. Adams asks us to imagine what could have happened if a similar process were in place years ago at a turning point in our nation's relationship to race and criminal justice. I often reflect to my students. Many, many of them are not aware of the 1994 crime bill that was ushered through by a Democratic president. And really how that crime bill exacerbated disproportionate confinement of black and brown people in the United States. Uh, we went from roughly uh, a little over 1.2 million people incarcerated to now well over 3 million people incarcerated in state and federal prison. And many of the black and brown people or the rates of incarceration can be traced back to the 1994 crime bill. So if we would have had this in place, if Congress would have paused and really had open discussion, asked the questions about some of those policies or programs in that 1994 crime bill, we may not be witnessing such a disproportionate confinement of African-Americans and um, people of color in our prison system today. And coming back to today, Maryland's next legislative session begins in January 2022. And Dr. Adams can easily see how this pilot project can have an impact moving forward. So I think what's changed is expectation moving forward that whatever it may be, whether it's health, economics, um, criminal justice, that we have an opportunity to do some type of impact statement around any proposed pieces of legislation. Because we have publicly now acknowledged structural inequality. And so moving forward, we should do this for all pieces of legislation that could potentially have a, a, a negative impact. Dr. Charles Adams is chair of the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Human Services at Bowie State University, where he is also director of the Institute of Restorative Justice and Practices. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. After decades and decades and decades of discrimination and suffering by black farmers in this country, due to racist federal and even local policies in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, now even COVID relief money, recently approved by Congress for the benefit of suffering black farmers, those funds have been delayed because white farmers have brought court challenges to the law in nine different states. Their white neighbors are holding up the relief the black farmers need, says John Boyd, a fourth-generation farmer 
who is founder and president of the National Black Farmers Association. Boyd says he had a chat with President Biden last week, and he told the president the administration was too slow in releasing the aid before white farmers bogged it down in court. Well, we're in a tough position right now, you know, with the lawsuits and everything, trying to payments up to blacks and other farmers of color from the Emergency Relief for Farmers of Color Act that passed under the COVID relief bill. Uh, So basically, uh, those payments have been halted based on some recent court actions from filed by white farmers. Uh, So they filed suit against us in nine different states uh, saying that, uh, in short, we shouldn't get the monies. Uh, So we've been fighting that. And uh, it's just been uh, overwhelming, you know, to meet all the court dates and all these uh, <clears throat> different federal courts and stuff around the country. And uh, so that's $5 billion that uh, should go out to black and other farmers of color that we basically uh, can't get right now. Uh, so we have uh, black farmers in, uh, <clears throat> facing foreclosure uh, that the definition haven't been uh, resolved with USDA on that, uh, whether they're going to continue to foreclose or wait for uh, further action from the courts or whatever. So it's uh, very busy, but but trouble time for us right now. This is reminiscent of going way back to the Clinton days when the... Absolutely. Absolutely. When the Agriculture Department was known as the most racist department in the federal government. Right not just because of the federal policies, but in particular because of the local policies that were set yes. up that you're describing that are getting in the way right now. Yes, it is. And that's uh, that, that's where we are now. So when I read these decisions from these <clears throat> different courts from around the country, they're uh, like uh, discriminant. They're writing these opinions like there's no discrimination today. We're still facing discrimination. And we've uh, proven a historical pattern of discrimination against uh, USDA. And it's seemingly though that uh, these uh, right-wing conservative judges, uh, some appointed by Bush and others by Trump, appear that they want to ignore history on that part of it and ignore where we stand today uh, from how we're being treated at uh, USDA. Uh, So that isn't uh, being taken into consideration uh, from the courts. Uh, so that's uh, been very problematic for me, uh, uh, reading these decisions. How has the Biden administration been with regard to helping the black farmers? Well, I think that uh, President Biden is on the right track, and I think that Secretary Vilsack was too slow in getting the relief out to uh, black and other farmers of color uh, based on uh, the history of when uh, subsidy payments are approved by Congress within days uh, they go out to white farmers <clears throat> and here we have the Farmers of Color Act that's now a law uh, he needed to listen and learn as we told us uh, and to have some listening sessions and, uh, and he had eight years to listen and learn from me and others who educated him about uh, what was going on with black farmers and other farmers of color in this country. Uh, so he moved too slow to get the relief out to and the payments, uh, both direct loans, debt forgiveness, and guaranteed loans, uh, debt forgiveness, 
he moved too slow uh, to get that relief out to to needy farmers. Is it too late? Well, it was too well, too late now because uh, now it's uh, we're being held up in these particular courts, uh, you know, through uh, injunction where these courts are prohibiting the payments uh, from going out until further court action. And that could take a while. And uh, that's been the pattern for black farmers in this country. You know, hurry up and wait. And, and uh, we're always in the wait mood, <clears throat> wait mood which is uh, detrimental to our farming operation. Farming is time sensitive. And it's planning season, and we, we need the money now. And, and now the, uh, the debt relief is being held up in, in court. Now, there's no objection from these suing farmers that white farmers have received aid from this COVID relief package, is, is there? Well you, well, you know what's problematic for me is uh, it's been white farmers getting the relief the whole time. Uh, so while I was asking Congress and the courts to act on debt relief for, for three decades, for over three decades, uh, that whole time span, White farmers were getting debt relief. They were getting loan reamortization and debt write down and all of these things. And black farmers were receiving a uh, uh, 30 day uh, loan acceleration notice where they sell your property or the option to put your farm in lease back buyback, which is made sign your deed over to the federal government and, and hopes that they will lease it back to you. Those were the programs that <clears throat> we were offered. And when you read some of the news reports now, they're saying, oh, well, you know, this is a, a new loan program that excludes white farmers. Doesn't exclude white farmers. You were the ones getting it all the time. Uh, you're the one getting all the subsidies and the loans and, and the debt write down. So uh, it's not adequately being uh, presented to the public right in, in the right way. Uh, there's some things that uh, Congress can do to to curtail some of this stuff and there's things to do that the administration can do uh, from the death of the president to help uh, uh, get relief out to, to black farmers and farmers of color now. And, I've, and I made that request uh, this past weekend uh, to President Biden in a buttonhole meeting and we had a chance to talk about it. Uh, so hopefully this administration will move uh, to put some things in place. What the president say? He said uh, he said it was uh, he was looking at it and uh, he had been watching some of my interviews and uh, stuff like that. And he said uh, he was, was going to try to uh, make some headway on it, what he told me. And I told him that I wanted to meet and have a more in-depth conversation about the whole measure and what could be done from the administrative standpoint, a more formal meeting. And he said that he said that he would. Uh, and that was the gist of the meeting. Is the biggest problem the problem of the money, or is there still land theft going on where the land owned by black farmers is being reduced and taken from them uh, unscrupulously? We have two. We have two problems. One, uh, the whole remedy with the, the, the debt relief that I just laid out to you. And then we have these still problematic issues at USDA. And uh, for the listeners, uh, discrimination has uh, uh, taken place 
on behalf of uh, black farmers by USDA, uh, on Republican watches, Democratic watches, discrimination has uh, existed, and that's why we called it the last plantation. And you know, your station followed me early on in this stuff. Uh, 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 you know, where I was bringing my mule and, and riding my tractor to Washington. You guys followed those stories very, very closely, so you know the history and pattern of discrimination there. Those things still exist because we haven't changed the system. And USDA hasn't changed the way that it treats its customers, i.e. black and other farmers of color. So the discrimination is still there and it still exists and uh, it needs to be dealt with. And, and that's what we've been saying for a very, very long time. Who are your allies? Who, who has been giving the strongest support to black farmers? I think uh, <clears throat> right now, uh, Chairman Scott uh, from Georgia in the Ag Committee uh, has really uh, stepped up and and addressing the issue. Uh, he held the first black farmer hearing in the Agriculture Committee this year. And I would say uh, Senator Booker on the Senate side, who is now on the Agriculture Committee, uh, has been a very, very good ally and, and, and really uh, taken some leadership role. And Senator Warnock, uh, the new uh Senator from Georgia also gets a thumbs up from me from, for taking up uh, debt relief. Uh, so I would say they, those folks there are really doing a good job. And there's others on the, on the CBC who, who've done a marvelous job o- over the years. It's just, uh, you know, it's hard to change people itself. And I think that's what people don't, you know, get. You know, we can put laws in place and all this stuff. But if white people can't accept that, uh, you know, we're going to be farmers too, we have a, a whole different bear here. Uh, and I'm saying that because it's actually white farmers that are the ones suing us in court to block the debt relief to black and other farmers of color. So people are going to have to change their hearts and, uh, and see that, you know, love is still greater than hate and always will be. Uh, so, you know, I have to be awful mad at you to take you to court and sue you, which is what white farmers are doing to black farmers and farmers of color in this country. Well, John Boyd, Thank you for sharing with us. Thank you for having me, and and thank you for staying on this story for so many years. Uh, God bless you. We end the show today on a topic that has dominated conversations in recent weeks, critical race theory, or CRT. The idea is just the latest punching bag for Republicans who construe any talk of racism to be anti-American and even communist. But not everybody is bowing down to the Red Scare. Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, addressed educators last week, speaking in defense of teaching about racism. Let's be clear. Critical race theory is not taught in elementary schools or middle schools or high schools. It's a method of examination taught in law school and in college that helps analyze whether systemic racism exists, and in particular, whether it has an effect on law and public policy. But culture warriors are labeling any discussion of race, racism, or discrimination SCRT to try to make it toxic. They are bullying teachers 
and trying to stop us from teaching students accurate history. This harms students. These cultural warriors want to deprive students of a robust understanding of our common history. This will put students at a disadvantage in life by knocking a big hole in their understanding of our country and the world. Yale historian Timothy Snyder likens it to the memory laws of Soviet and other repressive and authoritarian regimes. Because authoritarians take actions designed to manipulate interpretation of the past, then assert a mandatory view of events, and then forbid discussion of accurate historical facts. But you, the professionals in the classroom, just like you do the formative assessments, just like you're trying to do everything you can to engage kids, just like you've tried to keep kids safe and engaged in this last 16 months, you, the professionals in the classroom, you, the people who use your expertise to help our students succeed, you know better. We teach history, not hate. Because no matter our color, our background, or our zip code, we want our kids to have an education that imparts honesty about who we are, integrity about how we treat others, and courage to do what's right. We want to raise young people who can understand facts, study the truth, examine diverse perspectives, and draw their own conclusions. In other words, to think critically. Teaching America's history requires considering all the facts available to us, including those that are uncomfortable, like the history of enslavement and discrimination towards people of color and people perceived as different. Years ago, our country unified against Holocaust deniers. We must unite again to address racism and its long-term effects. And by the way, Students, at least older students who were recently polled agreed, 82% of college students overall say public schools should teach that patterns of racism are ingrained in law and other institutions. And that included half of college Republicans. These laws restricting what we teach impinge on educators' professional obligations, our obligation to teach honest history, as well as to teach current events like the January 6th attack on the Capitol, and to teach in accordance with the standards that each state adopts, which of course is a requirement for teacher licensure. It's so ironic that many of the same lawmakers who are so hell-bent on assessments based on state standards are now passing contradictory legislation that forbids teachers from teaching some of these standards. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger-Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Thank you for listening, and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. Music
Thank you.